everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I am your host, Taylor Rockwell. As you can tell by me doing the introduction, Daryl Grove is not yet back to recording. Uh, but instead, today I'm going to be talking to Joe Lowry, Joe in cleats on Twitter. Joe writes for The Athletic. He's been on the show before. He's the knower of all things. Uh, we're going to get into the U-20 roster for the U.S. national team uh, as they prepare for the upcoming U-20 World Cup. We're going to talk Major League Soccer. We're going to do a bunch of different teams. Uh, who's doing well? Who's not doing so well? I think we do thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs medium, and where they're trending. Um, and then we close up by talking about the Gold Cup roster, the provisional roster, as well as the weird hybrid one that was announced. Some players that Joe is excited to see. And he even gives us uh, who he thinks the U.S.'s starting 11 should be if and when they make it to that Gold Cup final. Uh, so it's a great conversation. Joe has much, much knowledge. We go deep on some topics. Others he answers so succinctly. We don't even need to go deep because he kind of does in an abbreviated answer. Uh, such are Joe's abilities. So I will stop talking and instead turn it over to me and Joe talking about all the things I just said we were going to talk about. Joining me now, I've got your friend and mine, Mr. Joe Lowry, making his triumphant return to the Total Soccer Show. Joe, thank you very much for taking the time and making that triumphant return. Absolutely. You know, it, it feels good to triumphantly return back into this podcast. So I'm really excited to talk with you today, Taylor. Yeah, I am too, because we've got lots of stuff to discuss. We're going to get to the Gold Cup roster a little later. We're going to talk some Major League Soccer, but we're going to start with the U20 World Cup, which uh, I'm not sure if it's already kicked off, but does uh, begin today, Thursday, when we're recording. Uh, the United States is not in action today. I believe they start tomorrow. Um, but I want to get a lot of U20 talk in here. Uh, Travis and Adam did some previewing on the Top Door Soccer Show. Adam of scuffed has done lots of previewing but joe i'm wondering how you're feeling about this u20 squad travis and and uh adam were inclined to say that this is maybe the deepest most professional u20 team that they've seen from the united states in a tournament like this would you agree with that i think so i was reading a story earlier this morning by armand kafai who writes for pro soccer usa uh, about fc dallas and, and pa McCall. Uh, he did a profile on him going into this tournament, and Pomacal said something about how this roster is all pros. And that, that really stuck yeah. out to me because he's right. There are no no college guys. This is a, a completely professional squad that they're taking to this tournament in Poland. And I think that's really going to bode well. May, I mean, regardless of how they perform in this tournament, it's an interesting uh, sign for future editions of this team uh, in future World Cups. So what are you expecting from this team to start off maybe in terms of like their overall approach? If you tune into a game 10 minutes in, like what are you expecting to see that you're like, yep, that's about what I thought it would be? So I think for Tab Ramos, we're going to see a pretty Ramosian 4-3-3. So there's going to be <laughs> uh, there's going to be some pressure extended high up the field, not constant pressure, but we will see some pressure, especially because this is an athletic team, I think. Uh, you have players at each position who can who can press a little bit and who are going to be smart about uh, their their angles to close down the ball and things like that. So I think we'll see some defensive pressure, and we're also going to see the U.S. keep keep the ball. And because they have players that can do that, they have guys who play in systems that value the ball with their own professional teams, and they also have skilled players. I think we're going to see the U.S. maybe move the ball and rotate from side to side better than than maybe we've seen from the U20s before, and that's going to result in a lot of gaps for the attacking midfielders in that 4-3-3 and for uh, the wingers to exploit, ideally, once they either shift an opposing team's block or can get out in transition and move quickly into the attack. So I think those are all some things to look for from this 4-3-3 uh, that we'll see from the U-20s in Poland. All right, well said. My, my question then becomes, if 
you're looking if we have like people who are less familiar with this U20 team uh, watching them in this tournament who are the players that you would look to that you basically want to see in possession or you think should be on the ball who can kind of slow it down who are very good about keeping the ball uh, moving it uh, left to right forward and back but like making sure that the United States retains that possession that is so important to this team so I think what you just described is is what we could see from Chris Durkin at the base of midfield. And not just Durkin, but I think he's the guy who who best embodies that skill set. We don't see it as much for DC United just because he's had a difficult time getting on the field past uh, Russell Knauss and, and Junior Moreno for DC and Ben Olsen. But I think he could really be a perfect fulcrum for that base of midfield. He's he's calm on the ball. He's got that that pause in his game. Like he can he like you said, he can slow down play when the U.S. has possession. So I think we could really see see him rotate the ball back and forth, maybe play some diagonal balls uh, into wide areas. But I think both him and uh, Edward Cerillo could be uh, – Edwin, sorry, Edwin Cerillo could both be really good fulcrums for that base of midfield. I want to talk about both of those gentlemen. I want to start with Chris Durkin. You may have just answered it, but I, I was curious what it was that like makes him so successful for the U20s but then has kept him from kind of bringing that same skill set to DC United. And I feel like you've just answered it with a like to use your Klinsman's line like others are ahead of him. Is that about what it is at DC? It's just that Canals has been that good that maybe Durkin doesn't get the minutes. I think it, that's only part of the equation. Okay. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this when I was watching DC uh, a few times earlier this season, and a part of it is that he has two established pros ahead of him. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think part of it could be because when you see DC United play, they're playing through uh, they're playing through Lucho Costa and they're playing through Wayne Rooney. That's that's what they mm-hmm. want to do. That's what Ben Olsen's attack is is built around. And so when you're playing through those guys who are maybe a little higher up the field, or maybe you even have them have both of those guys Acosta and Rooney dropping a little bit deeper to collect the ball, then there's less of an opportunity for Durkin to really be able to use his skill set. He has fewer touches on the ball. Maybe he's he has to defer more more frequently to those attacking players. So he has less of a time to impact impact the game in possession. So with the U20s, you have those attacking playmakers mm-hmm. up the field, but I don't think I don't think Durkin will have to defer as much, basically. I think that's that's the sum of what I'm trying to say. So I think with the U20s, he'll have a chance to impact play. All right. So then uh, it sounds like you're assuming that it will be Durkin starting in that 4-3-3 as maybe like the number six spot and then uh, Edwin Cerillo spelling him on occasion? That's my best guess. But okay. honestly, I, I wouldn't. both players are, are good and I wouldn't be surprised either way. Uh, well, that's, let's talk about Sarrio then, if, if, if you would, because I think in his, like, MLS preview, every single team preview column, Matt Doyle wrote that, like, uh, Carlos Goretzo would probably start as the FC Dallas number six, but, like, certainly they're going to sign some big name player, like, down the, down the road to replace him because he's maybe not at that level. Instead, it seems like Sarrio has kind of come in and really kind of taken that position and made it his own. I'm wondering, what do you think he has done to secure that spot, uh, with Dallas? so quickly or at least quickly to me it has been really quick and and from the outside at first as the season began it was almost a little bit of a shock but as I've seen Surio play more and more I think it's become clearer why Luchi Gonzalez has has put so much trust in him so quickly so Surio is is that rare combination especially for a young player of physicality and he also has skill on the ball so he puts those things together um he's He's a real force in midfield, and he can also play that you know that passing possession style that Luchi Gonzalez wants. You know, he's not perfect. He's still young. He's still growing. He's still probably even growing into his frame a little bit. But his ability to combine those two things 
is what's allowed him to function in. I think uh, Bobby Warshaw was the first guy to talk about this, at least that I saw that sort of triple pivot that FC Dallas use at times where they'll have one midfielder drop into the back line and, and they'll rotate out in, into different spaces, but it really can be any of those three midfielders in a 4-3-3. Surreal's comfortable in different spaces. He can drop deep uh, either between the center backs or, or on the side of the left or right center back. Um, he can also push forward a little bit. That's not necessarily his game, but he's capable because he has that skill on the ball. So that's kind of why I think he could be an impact player for the U20s, just because he's mm-hmm. versatile. Maybe even we could see him, theoretically, this doesn't necessarily fit in Ramos's 4-3, through three, but we could see Durkin and Surio get a little bit of time together, maybe at the end of a game, if you want Surio coming off the bench to provide some, some uh, energy maybe later on in the game or to break up play. So I think that the fact that Ramos has those two guys, and then you also have Brandon Cervani, who's kind of a wild card yeah. as well, um, that he can really do some interesting positional alignments with this midfield. So one thing that uh, Adam and Travis were a little bit concerned about uh, on the Top Draw Soccer Show was physicality and what happens if the United States plays a particularly physical or physically imposing team. Do they have the kind of uh, build to handle that? If there were one player, uh, not necessarily that we've already talked about, but just like in like those midfield options that you would look to if the game gets particularly physical, who is that player? Who do you think can handle that sort of game? I think if it's not Surio, it's... It honestly might be Pomacal, um, okay. which is a little bit weird to say. But what we've seen from him in Dallas this season is a guy who, you know, this is cliche, but he doesn't back down. He closes down the ball aggressively. He's he's willing to run at people both with the ball and then also defensively. He can close you down quickly and, and really cut down your space. So Pomacal, I think, could be a really good fit for a more physical, up-tempo sort of game. All right. And then uh, a few more positional questions for you. I'm, I'm kind of like trying to draw, uh, draw out a lineup as we go here. Uh, Ayo Akinola, uh went home, had a, had a knock. So does that clear the way for it to be Sebastian Soto starting as the number nine? Or, or was that always going to be the case, do you think? I think that was probably always going to be the case. But okay. now there's, there's less question. I mean, you have three, I think, three guys on this roster that could conceivably play that spot. Um, you have Soto, and then you also have Justin Rennix and Tim Weah. Weah will probably start out wide, and Rennix, Rennix probably will rotate in on the wing as well. But I think Soto is probably the guy up top, yeah. All right, so you got Soto up top. You've got Weah, I'm going to assume, probably on the left. Who would you mm-hmm. start on the right, then, if you were Tab Ramos? Or who do you think Tab Ramos will start on the right? I think, positionally, the best fit for that right wing spot is Conrad De La Fuente. Um, it hurts me a little bit to see Ulysses Giannis sort of relegated to the bench in this hypothetical lineup, but I think that's, I mean, that's the curse of having some some real quality in this team. So yeah, I'd say Conrad on the right. And then would you go Pamacal, Mendez, Durkin as your midfield three? Yeah, that would be my my trio. But honestly, yeah, it's it's hard to go wrong in that midfield, which is great. All right, but here's my question then about that midfield, specifically about Alex Mendez. Uh, for The Athletic, I believe you wrote that he had the best <laughs> left foot of any American. I want to know if you really stand by that statement. I, so I, I wrote that, I typed that sentence out uh, when I was writing that article and I looked at it and I, I really thought about it because I didn't want it to just be yeah. sort of a willy-nilly claim. I, I can't think of anybody with a better left foot and maybe I'm just completely drawing a blank here, but I think Alex Mendez's left foot is definitely the best at this age group and frankly, I can't think of a senior team player whose left foot I would trust over his. See, here's the thing, is that I, I had a reaction to that. I wrote that down. as like, I'm going to ask him about that. And then I did then think about it. And there's a reason why I didn't say, like, what about this guy when I asked this question? Because I think you might be right. He's got a pretty good left foot. And I'm not sure who I would say foot. who else does. Maybe, like, is John Brooks left-footed? I always forget which of our oh, center backs is left-footed. That is a good claim. 
Brooks, I believe, is left-footed. There we he, go. Yeah, he, he can play some sweet passes from the back. I, I, I still take Alex Mendez just because I like the idea of a center midfielder having the best left foot as opposed to right. a center back. But maybe that's my attacking bias showing. Maybe Daryl would disagree. <laughs> uh, but since we've talked about center backs there, or at least mentioned them with John Brooks, um, who would you then, with Araujo coming in, can play as a center back? He is the replacement for Ayoakinola, I should add. Uh, he can play center back. He can play, I believe, right back. Where would you utilize him? Or where do you think Tab Ramos might utilize him? I think we could we could conceivably see him at both spots. Um, I think we're probably more likely to see him shift into center back just because I think Dest has that right back spot pretty well locked down. Yeah. But if 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 Dest needs to rotate in either at left back or or up top on either of the wings, because I think he can do that, Araujo is the guy to slide in at right back. So I think I don't know between uh, Abubakar Keita, who you guys have probably maybe gotten to see a little bit for the yep. kickers. Is mm-hmm. that true? Well, we have um, him. Um, I'm curious as to what you think of his game because I haven't gotten a chance to watch him. But yeah, I think between Keita and Araujo, there's some actual depth now at center back. Um, and then Araujo can also slide in at fullback as well. That's good. Actual depth is good. So that leaves what uh, Richards and McKinsey probably as our starting center backs. And would you say Chris Gloucester as the left back? Yeah, that would be my my guess. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think Keita, yeah, could be that left back, could be a left center back. Uh, he has had a, I would say, a good start to his kicker's career. But there are moments that I have been uh, concerned about, uh, not to like keep uh, mentioning negative moments, but he had one where he basically, I think the kickers are trying to play this fast-paced possession, keep the ball on the floor of soccer. And Keita had one where the ball went to him. He kind of like put his foot on it, took a touch, came under pressure, and basically just passed it literally to the other team. Like, Daryl and I broke it down. We were trying to figure out, like, what was he thinking? And the answer is, uh, I think he just panicked a little bit. So I do right. think, but that's, you know, that's him getting his, I think that was his first start, uh, his first pro start. So he can be forgiven a little bit for that. I do also think that, when it comes to national teams, youth national teams in competitions like this, maybe you don't see as much of a kind of cohesive collective press as you might from a professional team that's played a bunch of games mm. together already. So maybe he has less to worry about there. He certainly doesn't need to worry about physicality. He has uh, not looked like a young player when it comes to like leading that back line, uh, winning balls in the air, challenging strikers who are much, much older than him or attackers who are uh, much, much more experienced than him out wide. So I've, I've been pleased with what I've seen. But I'm also very excited to watch Chris Richards and uh, McKenzie uh, as your center back pairing. I'll put it that way. I, I'm very yeah. ex- I like Abubakar Keita. I'm hyped on Abubakar Keita. But I want the uh, kind of chemistry and combination that I think allows us to do the best. And I do think it's probably Richards and McKenzie. Yeah, I totally agree. I think those guys are the penciled in starters. Mackenzie, I can just keep replaying that line splitting ball he had from yep. Concacaf qualifying to Mendez. Like that's all I can think about, and it's unrealistic to expect him to do that every single time he gets the ball. Obviously, but I mean, it just shows what what sort of uh, positional and and possession ability he has, and how he's developed under uh, Jim Curtin in Philadelphia last season, and how he can carry that over. So, yeah, Mackenzie and Richards, and then yeah, maybe Abubakar Kate is a wild card. I don't. I haven't been able to see too much of him, him or some of these goalkeepers. So I think that's that's what I'll be keeping an eye on a little bit in these group stage games. And so, are we in a position where it feels like the United States are are the United States the favorite to get out of this group in your mind? Like, are they the kind of team to beat if you're another team in the group? 
I mean, this is probably some sort of bias on my part, but I, I think so. This squad, this squad that the U.S. is bringing is legitimately skilled, and I would be, I would at least be shocked if they didn't make it out from the group, especially since some of, I believe, some of the third place teams make it out as well. So if they don't make it, I think that's definitely to be looked at as a failure. But I can see these guys as favorites, absolutely. It's it's a weird. Th- experience to have as a fan of American soccer but probably for to be like covering it in the way that you have in the way that we have like there's this uh, for me at least there's this hesitation to ever say that a U.S. men's program is like a favorite to make it out because uh, that feels like the height of hubris and that tends to bite <laughs> us uh, going forward but I'm with you that it does seem like this is a, a team that should go far they have the experience they have the depth they have the ability I'm not saying they're going to win the tournament, but it does feel like this could be a very successful campaign. At least I'm hoping it will be. If it is successful, if they do go deep, who do you think are the players that maybe, uh, not necessarily like, like are the, get the most headlines, emerge as the star player, but maybe like who are the two to three that you think become senior national team regulars the soonest? So number one, uh, thinking about that question, number one is Serginho Dest. Just mm-hmm. because of the... Sort of fullback, uh, lack of fullbacks that the senior team has at the moment. Um, we're seeing Tyler Adams sort of play that right back hybrid role, which I think we may be talking about a little bit later. Um, but Dest, I think, could really be a valuable addition if he can break into that Ajax first team, which I think he's perfectly capable of doing over the next year or two. Um, he's a guy that could be in the senior team pretty quickly. I think Berhalter, uh, Berhalter loves his right back. We've seen uh, Harrison Offal a little bit in Columbus do some cool things at right back. And then Tyler Adams and Nick Lima do some stuff for the senior team now. So Des could be the next guy sort of in that line. And then the other guy that I think could become a senior team regular um, really, really soon is Paxton Pomacal. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's already uh, acquitted himself quite well in Dallas. I think he's perfectly capable of stepping into the senior team relatively soon. Um, then you have Mendez, I think, who's also another guy who, if he can get some Bundesliga minutes next season, he's a, a guaranteed call-up. And I don't know if you heard this, but uh, I've heard Mendez referred to as the best left-footed player in the in U.S. pool. I don't know if you've heard I, I, I think that, that might be true. I, I haven't heard that before, but that's, right. that's a really good point. <laughs> um, all right, so U20s uh, getting in action uh, Friday. This uh, show should come out Thursday, hopefully, which is today. But the United States uh, kicking off... Uh, is it against Ukraine is their first game, then Nigeria, final group stage game against Qatar. Uh, USA, Ukraine will be 2.30 p.m., I think, is the broadcast time. So be sure to watch them. I'm sure we'll be talking more about them. But until then, we're going to talk about Major League Soccer. You mentioned uh, what McKenzie has been doing in Philadelphia. I wanted to start there because heading into this season, I think Daryl did the Philly preview. Might be wrong, um, but I'm going to put this on him. Uh, he had some concerns about, was it Ernst uh, Tanner, I believe, coming in mm-hmm. and sort of basically saying, yeah, I know what you were doing last season, Jim Curtin. We're, we want to do something totally different. So just kind of change your entire coaching philosophy real fast. And we had some concerns, and instead it seems like it's kind of worked. So I'm wondering, how have things gone so right for Philly thus far this, in the season? You know, those. if we're blaming Daryl here, I'd like to just, you know, say a little something on his behalf. I think that uh, those concerns are totally valid, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of completely changing, or, or not completely, I guess, that's not fair to what the union have done this season, but, but largely shifting a team's identity is difficult. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that happens a lot, and certainly not in MLS when we don't see a lot of teams with established uh, tactical identities. So when we look at Philadelphia, I think what they've done this season has been really impressive. Um, from, a, from a formational standpoint, they've shifted away largely from that 4-2-3-1 that they played uh, last season to more of a 4-4-2 diamond. 
Um, so that's been a, a shift as well. They've, the players in the midfield have had to learn to cover different spaces and to rotate in different areas. Um, but but the the identity shift has worked. Um, they've become not totally reliant on a press or or totally reliant on possession or anything like that. But they're they're mixing those elements together. Um, they can they've proven. I think they they broke down the Montreal Impact who who have a very good defensive mm-hmm. block um, earlier this season. So that's been an impressive look at what they can do with the ball, what the Union can do in possession. And that they're also dangerous in transition. They have uh, one of the best, fastest transitional attacks, I think, in the league. And that's really proving to be an asset against teams that try to push forward a little bit and try to pin them back. So the Union have have probably, outside of maybe LAFC, the most tactical versatility in the league. And I think they've managed to uh, really show that early on the season and and climb the way up the Eastern Conference standings. So they are uh, top of the table in the East at time of recording, at least. Um, but my question then becomes, when we talk about teams kind of figuring things out, figuring out their shape, figuring out their tactical approach, you almost strangely want it to be like at the midpoint of the season or near the end of the season because it feels like that's what allows teams to go on deep runs. Is like, oh, this clicks, so they find out how to best utilize this player, and suddenly it all comes together. I guess, strangely, is there like a concern for the union that if they're playing like a new system and everyone's doing exactly what's asked of them, does that make them easier to figure out in the long run? Or is there such versatility that you expect Philly to kind of stay where they are, at least near where they are at the top of the table? I think there are elements of their game that can be uh, that can be figured out a little bit um, if opposing teams can watch enough film on the union. Especially, you're, you're right, they are early on in the season, so maybe they've peaked a little bit too soon. But I do think that it comes down to their tactical versatility, like you're saying, Taylor. I think we will see that likely win out. Whether or not they stay at the top of the East um, for the whole season is is probably unrealistic, um, especially just given the nature of Major League Soccer. But I do think that they've set themselves up to be in a good position when the playoffs do come around. Obviously, things change. Um they're going to be missing McKenzie, even though he hasn't factored in a whole lot this season at center back. Uh, Aronson could see some some time away, either in some training camps or something later on in the season as well. So they could be missing some people here and there. Um, I believe Corey Burke is still stranded in Jamaica. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure where he is right now. But they've built up a good squad that's deep, and and their tactical versatility has really come in handy this season. So right now it's Philly on top, DC uh, behind, then Montreal, Atlanta, New York, New York, Toronto, Columbus. Uh, those are your like eight top eight teams thereabouts. How much do you expect that to change? Like if there were one team that you think does kind of get past Philadelphia, does finish top of the East, uh, who do you think that team is going to be? Ooh, that's that's really hard. I could see, I could absolutely see any of. I could see DC United moving up to the top of the table. I think they have uh, the talent and seem to be comfortable playing the style of soccer that Ben Olsen wants. Um, they've been able to shift between a couple of different shapes this season. Uh, some three at the back, some more standard four-two-three-one shapes. Um, I think they even moved Paul Areola inside a little bit. They, yeah, Ben Olsen's been doing some different things, which I've really enjoyed watching this season. We could also see, honestly, with the squad that Atlanta United have, mm-hmm. and they do seem to be a little bit more comfortable under Frank DeBoer now than they were earlier on in the season. They're not perfect. I don't think they've still quite found what they're great at, or at least what the talent on their roster, you know, should say that they're great at. They haven't been able to quite move the ball in transition, I think, like a lot of those players would like to. But Atlanta United, it seems kind of foolish to bet against them. And then, you know, Montreal, I don't know if they have the ability to stay up there at the top of the table, but they've been playing some good soccer as well. They're comfortable in their defensive scheme, uh, dropping into a block and then also pressing up a little bit at times. So I could really see any of those teams 
um, staying up at the top. Uh, maybe you see Toronto climb a little bit. They're struggling some right now, but I think they have the talent if they can if they can reestablish themselves and what they want to do with their tactical identity. Maybe sort out their defensive uh, struggles a little bit. We could see them climb the table as well. So I can't think of a better way to do this other than like like thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs like in the middle, me, like medium. Like where would you put say Atlanta right now, given the struggles they had early on to now being in four spot in the East? Would you give them thumbs up on the season? Are they thumbs middle or are they thumbs down? They're thumbs middle, trending upward. All like right. maybe it's it's a little trending upward. Going I like up it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's fair. Given the, like you're saying, the struggles they had early mm-hmm. on in the season, they do seem to have figured out their their defensive. Uh, ideology and i think they're they're definitely trending upward what about our 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 new york franchises uh fifth and sixth respectively red bulls then nycfc so nycfc i think are definitely trending upward they seem to be comfortable in the 343 it's kind of sort of a 343 kind of like a 34 i don't know they have they don't really play with any wingers it's mostly on the fullbacks that provide some width um i think they're comfortable in that shape james sands has been been doing well in that uh that like auxiliary central center back role. Um, Alex Ring has settled into that midfield and kind of is back in his his preferred skill set and, and where he likes to occupy space deeper in midfield. Um, the New York Red Bulls actually should have an article coming out on them pretty soon for the Athletic. Um, they're undergoing somewhat of a metamorphosis, I think. Uh, I spent I sent out a tweet that was you know I, I gave myself a headache thinking about what the Red Bulls should do, um, whether or not the press is is good enough to win them MLS Cup because we just haven't seen that um, and, and what that means Chris Armas should do tactically in the future. So the Red Bulls is a big old question mark for me. Um, that's, all, that's all I can say right now. <laughs> I mean, that, that, it's fine to have questions. It's fine to not know these things. Uh, but I'm hoping that you can help me understand Keaton Parks uh, because that's a player who, again, I can't remember if it was me or Darrow who did the preview, but either both of us were excited about Keaton Parks and it felt like a move that was going to definitely work out. He was going to become the starter. He was going to become the, the future number six of the U.S. men's national team. Right now, uh, I believe he has made four appearances for NYCFC. I believe all of them from the bench. So what do you think is kind of preventing him from moving to that next level? Is it just the play of those ahead of him or are there some things he needs to work on? So I think part of it definitely is that Chris Durkin syndrome a little bit of, you know, not being able to get on the field simply because of the quality options that are in front of them. Um, But uh, that can't be all of it, right? Because, I mean, there's got to be minutes. A coach can find minutes for a talented young player if that's something that he's interested in doing. But it just doesn't seem like Dome Torrent is interested in really utilizing the skill set that Keaton Parks provides. I wasn't able to watch his his most recent cameo. I think he got on against the Galaxy uh, at some point either last week or the week before. Um, but what I do remember from Torrent's usage of Parks is that he almost used him a little bit as like a, a Fellaini sort of figure late in the game, moving a big body forward into the attack and, and trying to find him in and around the box uh, using his size. And that's just honestly not Parks' game. Um, he, he's better with the ball at his feet, moving in and out of space. He can carry the ball forward from deep. He's just really silky smooth on the ball. And I, I'm honestly not sure. This is probably someone who's maybe watched NYCFC religiously this season could give a little bit of a better answer. But from what I've seen, Parks' skill set could absolutely fit in what Torrent wants to do. So, yeah, if I had a chance to ask him what the tactical reasoning behind 
leaving Parks a little bit out of the picture is, I would be very curious to find that out. All right. Well, I, I look forward to that future article. Uh, I do <laughs> want to talk about the Western Conference, but I have one more Eastern Conference question for you. Uh, I was sure that Keaton Parks was going to be a, a key player in Major League Soccer. But I had kind of concerns about uh, Nani coming into Major League Soccer that felt like a sort of signing of the past that wasn't necessarily going to be the best idea. Instead, it seems like it's working out. I'm wondering what your thoughts have been on uh, Nani so far for Orlando City. I totally, first off, I totally agreed with that premise. I think it was shared by a few people covering the league. You know, it does Nani still have what it takes to to be a main productive player on a, even an MLS team? And I think he does. Um, he's been a really fun part of, of Orlando City's front three. Um, they've played a couple different shapes this season, uh, a 4-3-3 or a 3-4-3, even a 3-4-1-2 sort of with maybe an attacking midfielder underneath a, a front two. And I think Nani's been been really good for Orlando this season. He doesn't necessarily have that top-end speed um, at this point, but his skill set still provides value in a front three, especially Orlando City aren't necessarily trying to own the ball for for really long stretches they're not they're they're somewhat content to sit a little deeper and then push forward in transition uh they have chris Mueller as well on that front three or, or coming off the bench who's been who's been an electric presence in that attack and i think nani's almost like glue that holds that together he has the skill set to to play passes uh forward if he drops a little bit deeper or he can be that outlet in the attack as well so yeah i think nani is is a bright spot in orlando for sure on a team that maybe quite hasn't figured out exactly what they want to do this season. Well, speaking of teams that haven't quite figured out what they want to do, let's talk Colorado. Uh, Major League Soccer is not a league that has promotion relegation, but maybe it should for Colorado. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you make of this situation there? Uh, the story today was that they had approached Josh Wolf about possibly taking over as their head coach. doesn't seem like they're going to splash a lot of cash to bring in a manager. What has gone wrong for Colorado, and how do you think uh, they fix it? I know that's the big question. I think if you can get that right, maybe you could become the head coach of Colorado. So uh, it's over to you, Joe. Figure it out. Um, this feels like an interview now. Um, so the Rapids, the Rapids really struggled under Anthony Hudson. They struggled to find. I mean, their their phrase is the Rapids way, um, and I don't think they really ever found what exactly that meant. Um, it it's it was a real disconnect between uh, tactical ideology and then an actual execution. Be, I mean, between that and the fact that before this. Uh, Midseason transfer window just ended uh, a couple weeks ago. They just didn't really have a whole lot of talent on the roster. They'd missed on a lot of the signings that that Hudson and the the GM brought in before that new regime sort of took over. So they they'd been kind of struggling um, to find talent and to to really make those players a, a factor into the team. So now a little bit with with the interim uh, head coach. We're starting to see some of the new signings that they brought in combine with the younger players that they have coming up through their academy. So we have Jonathan Lewis that they brought in from NYCFC. And then you have also uh, uh, Abubakar in the back, center back that they have on loan from Columbus. And then, you know, Cole Bassett in midfield. And they have uh, two young fullbacks as well that have been playing a factor. I've been playing a role for the team this season. So I think we're starting to see the Rapids sort of find what they want to do. They don't always have to own the ball, which is good because I don't necessarily think the signings they brought in are capable of helping them do that. But um, they just got a result against the Galaxy uh, on Sunday. So that's a step in the right direction. If they can find a permanent head coach that is going to bring in a concrete style of play, maybe not even for this season, maybe it's for next season. Maybe this season is an opportunity for them to grow comfortable with each other, identify areas of need for the future and sort of figure out what next season needs to look like. But I mean, they have talent. They have talent on the roster at this point. So 
I think things should be trending upward for Colorado. I mean, their thumb is still straight down, but I think <laughs> it's starting to waver a little bit. It's starting to quiver slightly, maybe up a little bit. So that's that's what I've got on Colorado. And where is the thumb for Sporting KC? Is it like thumbs down but with a sad face? The thumb is just broken. It's in okay. the sling. Um, because <laughs> of the injuries thumb. they've had this season, I mean, the thumb is, yeah, the thumb is struggling to hold on. Uh, they've really struggled with injuries. Uh, maybe a month back, I read, I read something that said they had to cancel training just because they didn't have the bodies to, to train. Um, so it, that kind of gives you an indication. They, they went from the extreme high of a good beginning performance in CONCACAF Champions League to sort of getting smacked, well, not sort of, they got smacked by Monterey um, in back-to-back games. They just haven't been able to get back to where they want to be right now. I think there's hope. If they can get healthy, I could see them uh, sneaking into the playoffs in the West, and then anything can happen once you get into uh, you know playoffs time. But yeah, they're struggling right now. Sporting Kansas City are struggling. How much do you think FC Dallas are going to be struggling, given that three of their midfielders are with the U20s right now? Is that going to be a big uh, impact for them, or will they be able to kind of ride that storm until uh, Cervania, Pomacall, and who am I forgetting? Sorio. Uh, thank you. Uh, return. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. We saw them uh, fall to LAFC. I think it was a midweek game at some point, and they they were missing those midfielders, and yeah, they struggled. Cervanian hasn't necessarily played a whole lot for Dallas this season. I don't think he's seen many minutes for the first team. He's been uh, mostly with their uh, USL League One affiliate. But he definitely would have been in line for minutes if he hadn't been at the U20 World Cup. So, yeah, FC Dallas are going to struggle until they get those guys back. But it's all part of Luchi Gonzalez's sort of long-term plan. He wants to show that uh, the the most important thing to Dallas is these young players' careers. And as you come through the academy, that's only going to give those guys confidence that Dallas is going to make the right decision for them. And sending those guys to the U-20 World Cup, while it, it's probably going to hurt uh, Dallas in the short term, is is only going to benefit their academy structure and their, their revenue model and eventually just the talent they're going to be able to bring in in the future. So I think Gonzalez is playing the long game. So are we looking at, is this like a, a, a slightly smaller thumb pointing up to re- like represent the youth? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a smaller thumb. I think that's perfect. All right. I like that. And then I'm going to assume LAFC, Seattle uh, get uh, straight thumbs up uh, top of the Western Conference. I'm assuming they're going to stay there uh, from everything that I've seen from the few games I've watched of them. Uh, What have you made of their season so far? Um, LAFC is just so far and away the best team this season. Not that that isn't capable of changing, um, but it, it seems like the roster that they've built and the tactical principles that Bob Bradley has been able to uh, to give to his team, I think is just a perfect combination. They're brilliant to watch. Um, if you're going to watch an MLS game, make it an LAFC game. Uh, they're just so much fun to watch. The the positioning they have, the midfielders rotate in and out. They can press. They can possess. It's it's a really they've achieved a really difficult combination of things uh, in how they play. They managed to combine uh, press and possession together, which is not easy to do. So credit to Bob Bradley and the roster they've been able to assemble there. Seattle as well. It dealt with some injury struggles. Uh, you know, now they're down a center back with Chad Marshall uh, retiring. So it's good that they they sort of stacked up that position during the recent transfer window. Uh, if they can get back to full strength, I think Seattle absolutely are the next team behind LAFC. I think it goes LAFC one, then like dot, 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 Seattle. Um, but those teams are both real quality at top of the West. And then uh, a little bit of a wild card, Houston Dynamo, I think are also belonging maybe just underneath Seattle in that category. I'm I'm pretty confident in what Wilmer Cabrera is doing. If they keep, can't keep Albert Elise, um, and maybe maybe they shouldn't keep him just for their business model, but if they can keep him or replace him with someone e- 
equally or, or maybe not equally, but someone at least capable, then they should be a force to be reckoned with in that Western Conference as well. All right. And speaking of Houston, uh, you mentioned Chad Marshall retiring. Demarcus Beasley also announced his retirement, I believe, at the end of the season, um, which I, I was kind of shocked by because I was one of the people who just assumed he would play forever. Um, <laughs> so what do you think it is that has made or do you think that Demarcus Beasley has been a special player for the national team and for Major League Soccer? And if so, like, what do you think it is that makes him so special? Because he does seem to be very much beloved by everybody who I saw writing about him or tweeting about him. Um, and not to say that like I don't love him. It's just he's one of those players who's like, yeah, it's Marcus Beasley. It's great to see him. But the kind of outpouring of like pure love and joy that he seems that his retirement statement seems to have brought was a little bit surprising to me. So I'm wondering where you are on that one. Yeah, I think Beasley is is definitely a figure that's going to be missed around American soccer. I mean, I hope. I believe he said I wasn't on the conference call, but he said that he's not planning on stepping into a coaching role anytime soon. Um, but if he manages to stay around the game, I think that'll be good just for you know American soccer, both development and just he's. I think he's beloved by the community. I think he's he's a great leader for Houston. I think he's a good locker room presence, and he seems like um, from everything I've seen and read, a stand up guy. Um, he's been a fixture for the national team. I mean, not, not so much recently, but he's, he's been a presence for the national team, uh, for years now. And then he's also, uh, from a, you know, from a tactical standpoint, he's been great for the Houston dynamo and what Wilmer Cabrera wants to do. He allows, he can, he's comfortable in wide areas on that left side, uh, pushing up from left back, which is his spot. Now he allows that left winger to tuck in a little bit. Um, they can combine in those wide areas. Uh, he's, yeah, he's he's a really good, um, solid positional option. He can defend uh, and he can push forward into the attack, which is exactly what Houston want with their fullbacks. So, yeah, I think Beasley is is an American soccer uh, legend almost in terms of just how long he's been around the game and the value that he brings to the teams that he's he's participated in over the years. All right, well, now, now you've made me even sadder that he's retiring. <laughs> um, I, then if we're talking about people who – who could be leaving the league? Uh, I wanted to go back to Bob Bradley because I don't think there's there's any like like substantive rumors linking him away. But for you, Joe, like not even anything you've heard or what do you think would be the best? I'm just wondering like what would you like to see as Bob Bradley's next step? Because it does feel like LAFC has even though they haven't like won silver or anything, it does feel like that has worked in terms of you consistently hear about them being well drilled, well coached. He's got people playing the way he wants them to play. Players seem to buy in. It feels like he's kind of got a little bit of that confidence back uh, after what happened at Swansea what do you think would be a good step for him what would you like to see Bob Bradley do is it stay with LA is it take another national team job is it try Europe again Uh, something else entirely what would you enjoy seeing Bob Bradley do long term so selfishly as someone who covers MLS and enjoys watching good tactically disciplined teams I'd love to see him stay in LA but then also on the other side of the coin you have you know, wouldn't it be fun just from a storyline perspective to see him head back to the Premier League and maybe maybe not taking over a Swansea team, maybe a slight you know a tier above that. Maybe it's not a team that's in the constant relegation battle. Maybe it's a mid-table team where he can actually hope to keep a little bit of possession um, and really show some of the same tactics that he's used with LAFC this season. I think that could be not only fun from a narrative perspective in terms of reestablishing himself or actually getting a chance to establish himself in the Premier League, um, but also just getting to watch some good soccer uh, that's coached by an American in in England, maybe catch a game on NBC on Saturday mornings. I would enjoy that. 
Um, I think the question I'm about to ask makes sense, but bear with me. Um, like, I'm wondering though, like when you say it'd be nice to see Bob Bradley go back to the Premier League, I agree with that. But my immediate reaction to that is like, yeah, but he's got to have another job first because it still feels like we're in a position where uh, Premier League and some of the bigger Euro- European clubs aren't necessarily going to look to Major League Soccer as like, oh yeah, this person is doing something really interesting or they're being really innovative. We want that as part of our club. Part of that is maybe a stigma about uh, Major League Soccer. Part of that is maybe like kind of like all the rules and regulations that go into Major League Soccer. Um, but I know there are outliers to this, like Patrick Vieira gets a job uh, straight out, straight from NYCFC, but I feel like that's because he's Patrick Vieira, whereas, say, Jesse <laughs> Marsh has the kind of intermediary period at Leipzig before he can go to Salzburg. What do you think it would take for – like how, what's going to need to happen for – uh, big, big name, or like even like mid-tier European clubs to start looking to Major League Soccer as like a direct avenue for coaching. Do you think? I think uh, there are more and more eyes on MLS, like every every day and every season. So I think we're as as teams sort of start to become tacti- more tactically capable and more recognizable on a global level, we'll start to see maybe some more coaches move directly from MLS to some of the bigger leagues in Europe. I think Bradley, I mean, Bradley definitely wouldn't take that path that you were talking about for Jesse Marsh. I just cannot, can you, I mean, I just can't imagine Bradley no, as an assistant coach. Um, that just wouldn't go well for anyone involved. But I think LAFC are doing something that just so few teams have done. And once we start to see more and more teams pull off what they're doing, once we see them look um, genuinely like excellent, in terms of how they're organized and how their their actual soccer is, like from both an aesthetic perspective and from a results perspective, that's when we're going to start to see guys move a little bit more. And maybe that isn't Bradley at this point in his career. Maybe, I mean, I don't think he's necessarily content, ever content, but I think uh, maybe it's some of the younger coaches that we'll see over the next few years. I don't necessarily have names off the top of my head, but maybe that's Alucci Gonzalez. Okay, that is a name off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was a pretty good name to That works. <laughs> with what he's bringing uh, to FC Dallas and the, the identity that he's brought there. I mean, we saw it a little bit with Marsh, but you're right, there was that stop in the middle. So that's a great question and something that's definitely worth exploring more in the future and maybe keeping an eye on as the league matures over the next few seasons. All right, I, I gift that to you. That is, that is now for you to figure out. Uh, that and I believe coaching Colorado are the two jobs that you've picked up uh, in this Perfect. interview. So good good job by you. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did want to talk Gold Cup roster for a moment. We have the provisional roster. We also have the strange hybrid training camp that has been announced for the end of May, beginning of June. That's a little confusing. Um between those two things, uh, that hybrid camp and this provisional roster, um, are there players that you are m- most excited to see? Not even like excited to see. I'm sure you're excited to see everybody back in camp or <laughs> potentially back in camp. But what are some names on that provisional roster list that you were especially excited to see included? So I'm really excited to see uh, Miles Robinson, first off. Mm-hmm. I think just sort of keeping a little bit with the MLS theme there. I don't know where he factors in in terms of senior team, maybe Olympic team. I don't know where he'll find his minutes for the U.S., but it's cool to see a player really burst onto the scene in MLS, uh, a young American, and a center back especially. I love, I love, uh, I love center backs. Um, it's cool to see Miles Robinson become a key player in Atlanta and then have that translate to this uh, U.S. national team call-up. So really excited to see what Miles Robinson could potentially bring at some point to, to one of the U.S. national teams. Um, Walker Zimmerman as well. I'm really excited to see. I don't, I don't think he was in that last, uh, group of friendlies. I could be mistaken. I don't remember him getting called into that. I don't group. think he was. I think Aaron Long um, was Walker. That's Zimmerman right. Was not. 
That's right. So in my mind for a while, they were kind of tied at the hip a little bit. Yep. Aaron Long, Walker Zimmerman and Matt Hedges. But um, Zimmerman and what he brings in terms of distribution from center back, I think is is really great for Berhalter's system. So I'm excited to see him. And then last guy, I know you guys talked about, you and Daryl talked about him in your uh, analysis of that Gold Cup roster, but Dwayne Holmes as well. Um, it's kind of a little bit, I mean, we have now, thanks to um, the internet, we have seen a little bit of these more obscure players. Obviously the championship is not an obscure level, but Dwayne Holmes, I think could really provide some, some value in those, uh, those interchanges between wingers and midfielders that Berhalter likes to use. Um, maybe we see him and Pulisic sort of rotate in and out of those channels uh, for the national team. So that's, that's a guy I'm really excited to see as well. So if we kind of go with what Berhalter has done in the past, where we have like kind of a deeper, deeper holding central midfielder, but maybe the right back becoming another midfielder and then like almost like four and then one ahead of him, something like that. Like what, what would you expect? Where does Dwayne Holmes fit with that uh, rough formation and tactics? Who do you think like he'll be up against for starting spots, for example? It could be, I mean, it's really tough to say it could be, in one of those, it's probably in one of those central midfield spots, mm-hmm. which, I mean, means that he's either competing with Pulisic or McKenney or even Sebastian Lejets or mm-hmm. Jordi Mihailovic, those guys that we've seen play that spot before. In a perfect world, I'd really like to see um, Pulisic and Holmes on that left side. Um, you can leave McKenney on the right. And then you have Pulisic maybe start a little wider, but then you do have those interchanges that I think Berhalter likes to see. Um, so you could have Holmes tucking in into midfield, which is where he'd start um, in terms of his positioning. And then maybe he rotates wide and allows Pulisic to track in and tuck into midfield and, and pick up the ball and then transition quickly. Whether or not we'll see that, I don't think we probably will see that. So that means that Holmes's path is probably a little bit more cloudy in terms of mm-hmm. hum, hopping in front of Pulisic in the depth chart or McKenney. But that's kind of my vision. We could see it. It's conceivable, but it's not as necessarily likely. Yeah, then that, that that makes sense to me, and I and I do like that because I do like the idea of Pulisic being sent wide. I think that makes more sense, especially as you do have a bit more midfield talent. At least I think we do on this roster. I would be okay with Pulisic playing wide, and that maybe opens up some opportunities for other wide players to be challenged or to, to be moved around a little bit. Um, one area where I kind of struggled was at goalkeeper, strangely enough. There are five goalkeepers on this provisional roster, Brad Guzan, Ethan Horvath, Sean Johnson, Tyler Miller, Zach Steffen. Um, no disrespect to Tyler Miller, I, he is probably fifth on that list in my mind, but I did really struggle to, if you're kind of trying to put together a depth chart for the Gold Cup, who those three would be. I'm wondering who are the three goalkeepers, uh, not necessarily even just in this, like, in this list, but overall, who are the three American goalkeepers you think best fit what Burhalter wants to do, uh, both defensively and when the United States have the ball? The three guys that I think fit that role best is, uh, are Zach Steffen, Sean Johnson, and Brad Guzan. Mm-hmm. Whether or not we'll see that exact combination is an, is an entirely different question. I don't know exactly why we haven't seen Brad Guzan until, until just now in terms of his call-ups to the national team because I don't think we've seen him so far yet under Burhalter. Um, so that's a bit of an interesting question. I think Stefan still has the number one shirt. So in my mind, it's going to be Stefan, Sean Johnson, and then the battle between Brad Guzan and Ethan Horvath is, is a bit of an interesting one. And I guess maybe you can throw Johnson into that group as well. Horvath doesn't have the foot skills um, that those guys do. Not that any of them are flawless, but I think they're all better distributors from deep than Horvath is. But Horvath's shot-stopping ability is is so good, and I think we saw that in one of those Dave Surikin friendlies against Italy. I think we saw Horvath pretty much stand on his head. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is something that uh, you can't you can't get enough of in terms of some of the opponents that the U.S. will have to play if they're really trying to compete in World Cups in the future. Um, so my bet is that Berhalter will call Horvath in just simply because of that ability and then try to teach him the necessary foot skills that go along with it. Um, so what that means for either Sean Johnson or Brad Guzan, I don't know. But that that's definitely an interesting storyline to watch as this camp unfolds and then heading into the Gold Cup. All right. Another, another storyline for me that I'm – kind of fascinated by is Tyler Boyd. And that's not a thing I would have said probably a week ago because I'm not sure he was uh, yet eligible to represent the United States a week ago. The one-time switch has now gone through. uh, As I've said multiple times, I think he will be in the Gold Cup squad. Uh, But I don't really know what to make of Tyler Boyd. I've seen enough footage to be like, yeah, he's good, but I'm not quite at that like hype level and I do think I think Daryl and I talked about this this week that like there are parallels in my mind to Kenny Saif where he's kind of gets the clearance he's eligible he's in the gold cup but there are moments when we're excited and there are moments where we're like ooh, that doesn't look as good as we would have liked and then it kind of doesn't not necessarily like ruling out Kenny Saif but it's worth noting he is not on this provisional roster and so I think that's kind of factoring into my estimations of Tyler Boyd of like exciting player like mid early 20s uh, gets eligibility included in the gold cup but i'm not quite sure what to make of them i want it to be good but i can't tell if that's like my heart going above like what i've observed so what are your expectations for tyler boyd from what you've seen of him from what you've heard of him how do you think he factors into this team and are you expecting him to be a straight thumbs up player or is it do you think it to be it's going to be a little bit more nuanced than that I think he has the potential to be more of a straight thumbs up player. Simply, okay. you know, drawing the differences between him and Saif a little bit. Um, so wait, Saif, Seth, I, uh, that's going it, to It's a mind. whole thing. Uh, it's, it's, one um, okay. of, it's one so, of those. So Kenny, yes. so Kenny, <laughs> Kenny, there we Kenny go. is more of a tweener in terms of his position. He's capable <laughs> of playing kind of anywhere along that attacking, like underneath yeah. the striker, maybe on the wing. It's, it's a little bit harder to say what his his best position is. I think with Boyd, we have a little bit of a clearer understanding of, of his abilities as a, a straight-up winger. And I think that's something that's going to come in handy for the U.S. in this Gold Cup. Just because I personally don't think the winger depth right now with the, with the senior team eligible players is very good. It's not a particularly deep roster. Yeah, and it's not a particularly agreed. skilled position. Um, so I think if we could see Boyd really make one of those, maybe it's that right wing spot his own. Um, that could be a really, really valuable thing for this U.S. team. If he can stretch a back line, uh, stay wide, and maybe provide just even an ounce of creativity and, and dribbling ability in the wide areas, which I think he can do. That's going to be a really huge thing in terms of making this uh, U.S. attack, um, sort of piecing that attack together. So I think Boyd, I haven't ever watched a full game of his, so I don't have a super clear understanding of you know what his positioning is off the ball, what his tendencies are in terms of uh, tucking inside or staying wide. But I think if he turns into the type of winger that Berhalter likes uh, in, in the positional profile that Berhalter wants to see from those wide players, he could be a really valuable addition to this team. All right, so now I'm going to ask you a a fairly difficult question, Uh, but since Daryl isn't here, I'm going to let you do a thing that we would normally do. Uh, I'm going to let you do it by yourself, and let is to say I'm going to force you to do it. Um, Like, if you were to sort of combine what you know about what Burhalter wants to do with what you would like to see the U.S. do, if the U.S. uh, gets to the final... uh, and like they kind of have everybody uh, at their at their disposal. What is the starting eleven that you think is like something Greg Berhalter could do, but that you would most like to see? Does that make sense? Like combining what we know yeah. Berhalter likes to do with what you think could work. Who would you like to see starting in that final? Right. Okay. So so 
in preparing a little bit of this lineup for for this, I'd like to start out by making a couple of qualifiers. Sure. So I'm going to assume that we're playing Mexico. Just <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was about to make that. that. Seems like the most yeah. likely opponent. Yeah. And I'm going to also make the assumption. Now, this is not necessarily true, but I'm going to assume that the U.S. won't necessarily have the lion's share of possession. Mm-hmm. So those are my two sort of qualifiers before listing this lineup. Um, so I'm going to start in goal, and I believe it's going to be Zach Steffen. That would be maybe the position I'm most confident about in this entire this entire uh, yep. starting eleven. So Zach Steffen in goal. And then we're going to jump to right back. So I'm going to have Nick Lima on the right just okay. because he's familiar with um, with that right-sided role. He's capable as a fullback. I mean, he can honestly play on the left side as well. But Nick Lima on the right, uh, Greg Garza at left back. This is – I'm really, I'm really you know, pushing the limits here because I don't necessarily know if we'll see Garza even in that Gold Cup squad. But yeah. for the sake of this lineup in, I love it in game for Mexico, that's what I'm going for. So Greg Garza on the left. Then I'm going to have Long and Miazga at left center back and right center back respectively. I think those are both solid options, especially without Don Brooks in the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is kind of, I guess, the most you know interesting position, I guess. The central defensive midfielder in my 11 is Tyler Adams, just because my my take on Adams is... So many people are like applauding while listening to this right I know, now. I, I know, know. You know I'm that. not just doing it for them. I'm not just doing it for the applause of the listeners. Sure, but, sure, 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 sure. Um, more, more, clap more. Um, <laughs> just because I think Adams is the right guy to play in that central midfield role against a team that has uh, really capable offensive movement and, and will potentially own the ball against the United States. We saw what happened with Arturo Vidal and Chile's positioning mm-hmm. kind of just overwhelming Michael Bradley and that I believe it was the left side of the U.S.'s like defensive structure. So with Adam, you have a, Adams, you have a guy who can cover more ground, break up play, and also transition attacks forward if we're assuming that the U.S. won't necessarily have the lion's share of possession. So Adams at central defensive midfielder with Pulisic and McKenney in front of him. I kind of deferring to Berhalter there. It's my preference probably to have Pulisic out wide in this 4-3-3 system, but I think he can really make it work that Pulisic can still pull some attacking strings um, from midfield and, and provide an asset, uh, provide value to the team in transition. So Pulisic and McKenney in front of Adams. And then up front, uh, Altidore at striker. I think if he's healthy, he's still the guy. I think I'm really actually genuinely excited to see what a healthy Josie Altidore could do in this system. I mean, if Giassi Zardes can produce for Berhalter and Columbus, I think Altidore can do it for the U.S. national team, and I'll leave it at that. Um, on the right side, I really would like to see Tyler Boyd um, mm-hmm. factor in just because I do think he brings that uh, maybe a level of skill that a lot of these other wingers don't have. And then on the left side, Paul Areola. Um, he has the defensive capabilities. He's comfortable, slightly comfortable tucking into midfield, which would allow Pulisic to rotate wide. Um, he's a hard runner if the U.S. decides to press. Uh, he's a smart player. So I think that's that's my 11. Stefan at the back, Lima, Miazga, Long, and Garza in the back line. Adams with Pulisic and McKenney in front. And then a uh, Areola, Altidore, Boyd front three from left to right. All right. I dig it. I like it. This is this is why we love Joe Lowry because in uh, less than an hour, we, I believe we we had an in depth. I'm, I'm going to say we, but really Joe gave us an in depth look at the U20s. I think we talked about more than half of the teams in Major League Soccer, and we got a, a good Gold Cup roster uh, preview breakdown. So Joe, thank you for all of the knowledge. Thank you for uh, helping me feel slightly more informed when it comes to all three of those uh, subjects. Thank you for all that you do. Absolutely. No, this was a blast. These are three of my my favorite topics around the soccer world. So this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Taylor, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. And and if people want to hear more from you, read more from you, uh, what have you got in the works or where can they find you? So uh, I have that Red Bulls piece in the works that should be coming out pretty soon. 
there'll be some U20 stuff coming out uh, at some point in the near future, probably after the U.S. have played some of their group stage games. And then I'm also going to be taking a look at um, whenever the U.S.'s next uh, games are friendlies before the Gold Cup and maybe some analysis uh, before the tournament actually starts. So you can find my writing at The Athletic or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Cleats. I would do both of those things because uh, <laughs> Joe is quite good at what he does. So, Joe, thank you uh, one more time. We very much appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Taylor. It was a blast. We'll be right back. 